Good afternoon. We'll look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 today. Let's pray together for this time. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We pause and think about all the different things that we have to be thankful for, the things that we might easily take for granted, but the presence of your blessings are always there in Jesus Christ. We pray that you remind us of your goodness to us through your word and allow that to produce a faith-generated strength that would seek you and live for you. Be here with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're at 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're actually going to look at verses 1 through 17. And uh, this is the, the Davidic covenant, the covenant that the Lord makes with David that has ramifications um, for, you know, for the time hereafter. Okay, so uh, the Lord will make you a house. Verse 1, first uh, we'll talk about do all that is in your heart. Verse 1, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Um, this chapter and is about God making a promise to David um, that his kingship and his dynasty would last forever. And... Um, for even from this verse, in verse 1, we can tell, like we mentioned last week, that, that other things must have come first in David's kingship, right? So the events of this chapter, chapter takes place, it says, after he fought all his enemies. So again, it's not necessarily in chronological order, um, but the author places it here. Chapter 7, it's, it's here right after chapter 6 because chapter 6 was about David honoring the Lord. Remember, as, as Israel's true king, as he brought the Ark of the Lord to his city. And then now this chapter is about the Lord honoring David by promising him a lasting dynasty. So there's, so there's that kind of arrangement here by the author. David's covenant faithfulness in chapter 6, and then the Lord's covenant blessings in chapter 7. Um, verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Okay, so um, he's defeated all his enemies. There's peace around him. And David looks around in, in that situation, and he says, This isn't right. There's something about this that's not right. Here I am, living in a nice house made of cedar, but the dwelling place of the ark of God is a tent. He says, that's not right. So David wants to do something about that, and he wants to build a temple for God. So he brings that idea to Nathan, and Nathan the prophet says to David, without having prayed about it, he says, go do it. Do whatever's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, let me ask you this. Is what Nathan told David, is that good advice or bad advice? So, for example, if you ask me about a decision that you're trying to make, oh, I don't know, after I graduate, what I should do. Oh, I'm thinking about this guy, I'm thinking about this girl, what should I do? 
And I go, go do all that is in your heart. For the Lord is with you. Is that good advice or bad advice? You'll like the advice, probably. But is that good or bad? Well, that depends on who you're giving that advice to, right? Because it really depends on what's in your heart. If you're going to say, go and do all that is in your heart, it really depends on what's in your heart. If what's in your heart is selfish, then obviously you can't just go and do all that is in your heart. But if what's in your heart is just a, a deep desire to glorify the Lord, then you can't really go wrong no matter what you do out of that heart. God will bless almost everything that you do because what you want to do is for the glory of God. So if you really want to live for the glory of God, then at that point, as you're trying to make decisions, the question is, that, right, the question of what is God's will in this situation, it really becomes a choice of what is good, better, or best. Right? Because the heart just wants to glorify God, so I'm just trying to decide what is the best. Okay, then. All right, so now, all right, so, okay, I hear what you're saying. So then now, if I really do want to live for the glory of God, then does that mean that I don't even have to ask the question, what is the will of God in my life? Right? So if I really intend to live for the glory of God, for example, and I get my degree, does that mean that I don't really even have to ask the question, like, what does God want me to do? Does he want me to stay here in Minnesota? Does he want me to move elsewhere? Does that question not even matter? Should I just follow the do whatever is in your heart for God is with you kind of principle if I just want to glorify God? No, pause, because no, not necessarily. We're not saying that because there are still particular callings, particular callings that God has for us. Even here in David's case, even though, you know, Nathan said what he said to David, God still had a particular will for David. God says later on to David, you are not the one to build my house. It was God's will for not David, but for Solomon, his son, to build the temple. So there are many situations like that where God has a particular will for us, but at the same time, when the heart is right, and this is what we're saying, when the heart is right, then God can easily redirect us to do his will. As in this case with David, David had it in his heart to build the house of God, in his heart wanting to glorify God, and he was going to do it. And then God says no, and God redirects him. That's why, that's why I would say that when we ask the question, what is God's will? Whatever situation you're dealing with, like what is God's will in this, in this situation in my life? I would say that the deeper question that we have to ask first is, am I surrendered to do, to do his will? Even before I ask, what is God's will? I think the bigger question is, am I surrendered? No matter what his will is, am I surrendered to do his will? And I think being surrendered to do whatever God's will is really solves like 90% of the what is God's will question. Because if you are surrendered to his will, then 10% is just basically God directing us and redirecting us to his will. So that's the kind of place that we want to be in our hearts. We want to grow in our faith 
and be surrendered in our hearts to live for the glory of God so that God can say to us, you can do whatever is in your heart and I will be with you. That's a good place to be. and That's where David was in his heart. And that's why Nathan gives him this advice. Go and do whatever is in your heart for God is with you. Okay, but now remember, we said Nathan didn't pray about it, right? Secondly, the self-sufficient God. Verse 4, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So apparently the Lord was eavesdropping in a conversation between David and Nathan. Verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? So now, when God says that, would you do, build me a house to dwell in, God is not saying here, oh, would you please, would you please build me a house to dwell in? That's not what God is saying. The NIV translates this, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? In other words, God is saying, David, you are not the one to build my house. Verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved in all the people of the, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God basically says, over the past few hundreds of years, I've never commanded anyone to build a house for me. So essentially God is saying here, David, I don't need you to build me a house because the Lord is the self-sufficient God who does not need anything from human hands. God later commends, he later commends David for having it in his heart to do this for God, but he is not a God who is in need that he should negotiate with man to do things for him. You see, many foreign gods at that time they functioned in that way, right? It was common for other nations to construct large building structures or statutes with the intention of conveying how great their gods were. But the Lord's glory did not depend on a majestic building structure. The Lord often revealed his own glory by himself, by the... By, by the works of his hands, by the mighty, miraculous works of his hands, like the parting of the Red Sea, or by making the sun stand still in the middle of the day. So God didn't need help, the, the help of human hands to convey his glory. And this is something, I believe, that would be good for us to always remember. The fact that God doesn't need us, that he's really fine without us. We say things at church like, oh, we need people to volunteer for this. Or, uh, oh, you know, we need people to step up. We need people to serve. So please, right? When we give announcements, we say, please, right? Like, as we were trying to, like, persuade you and urge you to sign up, please serve, right? Give your time. Give your money. And we say things like, God needs willing servants. Now, you have to understand, when we say things like that, 
It's, re- it's really only from a human perspective. Because to say that God needs, right, God needs us to do something for him is theologically completely heretical. In reality, God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need any of us. So if I was unwilling to serve in this church through preaching, then God's work will not be impeded one bit because he can replace me with someone else. And if there's no one else, as he has done, as recorded in the Bible, he can use a donkey to speak his word. God is the self-sustaining, self-sufficient God who does not need anything from human hands. The only reason why we can serve God and do anything for God is because he allows us to participate in his work. So we're wrong if we think that my contributions to God's work is in some way indispensable, like that God actually needs me. That's basically what God says to David. It's good that you had it in your heart to build me a house, but I don't need you to build me a house. Thirdly, living in God's grace. Now, after God says, I don't need you to build a house for me, the Lord actually names rather now a few things that he's going to do for David and for Israel. Verse 8, now therefore, thus who shall say to my servant David, thus as the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went, cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. God reminds David that he has been with David from the beginning, that he has been with him, and that he has never stopped being with him. God took David from being around sheep to the place where now he's the leader over Israel. So basically took him from nothing, gave him everything. And then, on top of that, God says, I will make your name great. In other words, he says, moving forward, you know, I was with you. I never stopped being with you. And moving forward, God says, I will continue to be with you. On top of what God's already done for him, God says, I'm going to pile on even more blessings, more favor in your life. I will make your name great. I have been gracious to you. I will be even more gracious to you. I think there's a lesson here that we can learn, that we can apply into many areas of our lives. For example, I think this is a key to having a happy marriage. I know, where'd you get marriage application from this? Uh, Meaning this, like some couples are really good at keeping track, keeping track and tallying points. For example, I cooked, so you should clean. I did the dishes and laundry yesterday, so you should bathe the kids and put them to bed today. And the goal as you negotiate, the goal is to stay relatively even because that's fair. So as much as I give to my spouse, 
I also take back from my spouse with my expectations. And some marriages work like that. Most roommate relationships work like that. So basically, in these relationships, it's like me plus you equals zero, right? Whatever I give in, I'm eventually going to cash that out. So me plus you equals no positive number. The goal is zero. It's a give and take relationship. I'm going to take. You never say it like that, right? Hey, you want to live me together? I'm going to take as much as I give. We never say it like that, but that's exactly what we do in our relationships, in our marriages. But it's very different when you live with someone who, who gives and doesn't keep track. They give, and then they forget that they give. So they give again. And the effect of living with someone like that, who's always piling on grace upon grace, is that eventually you feel sorry, right? Oh, man. And you become thankful, and you want to be better. You see, that's the kind of grace that David lived in. God says, I have been good to you. I will continue to be good to you. I took you from nothing and gave you everything, and I will do more for you and make your name great. In the previous chapter, in chapter 6, David said, said to Saul's daughter, Michal, chapter 6, verse 21, it was before the Lord who chose me. Remember, this is when he was dancing, and she's like, why are you dancing? You're not acting like a king. It was before the Lord. I was dancing like that before the Lord who chose me from your father, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. So now David is saying this many, many years after God chose him and anointed him king in 1 Samuel chapter 16. But you see, David still had it in his heart. He still had it, kept it in his heart that he was living in the grace of God. He says, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve any of this. It's by grace that I'm in this position. Here I am living in this nice house of cedar while the ark of God is in a tent. David remembered all the things that the Lord did for him, and now he just wants to do something for God. You see, that's the power of God's grace that is at work in a thankful heart. I just want to do something for God. Sometime this week, I want to encourage you, before Thursday, I want to encourage you to spend some time in solitude, reflecting on a God who has been good to you. Don't let Thanksgiving catch up on you without having done that. On top of his already goodness, right, there's like an already goodness that we've experienced in our lives. He always continues to pile on even more goodness, blessings in Jesus Christ. And you see, when we live in that grace, in the reality of that grace, then nothing is a burden. Everything becomes a privilege. Then I don't have to, I get to. Living in God's grace. Lastly, the covenant-keeping God. Verse 10, God continues. 
and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So in addition to I will make your name great, the Lord also promises security, stability for Israel. You see, back in Genesis 15, we read in verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. The land where David now is, that was the very land that the Lord had promised to Abraham in this covenant with Abraham, saying, I will give you this land to you and to your offspring. But even after that, even after they received the land, there was always insecurity. There was always instability. They were always, you know, in conflict with their enemies and things like that. But then in, we read in Deuteronomy 11, verse 24, it says, Every place on which the sole of your feet treads shall be yours. No one shall be able, no one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you in all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. Okay, so now what we read here in Deuteronomy 11 takes God's promise to Abraham and takes that a step further. Remember, God says, I will give you this land, right, to you and to your descendants. Here God says, not only will I give you this land as I promised before, but not only that, but you will also have stability and security. I will, you know, I will, like, people will fear, other nations will fear when they, when they hear of you because of me. So now, what we see here in our passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's that same promise unfolding a step further. When God says to David in verse, verse 10, I will appoint a place. It's that same word. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. That, that, that word place, so it seems like it's a deliberate reference by the author referencing the unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant. It means that God is now fulfilling what he had promised in the past. The covenant-keeping God is fulfilling his promise. God says, I will make your name great. I will plant you in this appointed place, because all of that is a part of God keeping his previous covenant to his people. And then he says, continuing on in verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Right? So the word house, there's a play on words here with the word house. It's the same word that we saw earlier in verses 1 and 2 when... It says, the king lived in his house. And David is saying, I dwell in this house of cedar. And he's saying, I want to build a house for God. And then God says, no, no, no. Rather, I will make you a house, meaning I will make you a dynasty. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up 
your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So God promises here that David will be succeeded on the throne by his own son, unlike Saul. And we know that David's son Solomon becomes the next king after David. So these verses obviously are talking about Solomon. But these verses also have a dual meaning because while they refer to Solomon, they also refer to Jesus Christ. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This obviously refers to Solomon who builds the temple for God. He shall build a house for my name. But also refers to Jesus who came to establish the everlasting kingdom of God. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. This word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, which means unfailing love, faithful, steadfast, loyal love. So this means that no matter what happens down the line in Israel's history, the Lord will not remove his covenant love from David's descendants. It's a promise that God makes here. The Lord promises that his love will remain steadfast. Verse 16, lastly, in your house, in your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is what we normally refer to as the Davidic covenant. It not only assures David that his son will follow him as king, but that the kingship will remain in his lineage. And so what that means is that the Messiah king, who will eventually come later to rule over his kingdom forever, this Messiah king will come through the line of David. Now, because the Lord made this promise to David, it affected pretty much everything that happened in the rest of Israel's history. After, after David, uh, Solomon comes to the throne, and after Solomon, the kingdom gets divided into two sides. So if you see from this picture, they get divided into two sides. The north is called Israel on the left, and the south is called Judah on the right. Now, um, if you see the kings, the kings of the southern kingdom, Judah, so the, the list of names on the right, they continue to be from the line of David as the Lord had promised. Right? All the names on the right side are uh, descendants of David as the Lord had promised in, in this covenant. Now, let me ask you this. How many were good kings and how many were bad kings in Israel and Judah? And you see that in this next slide. Okay? So you see pretty much all the ones on the left in Israel, the northern kingdom, are, are, are sad faces. It means they were bad kings. Right? So-and-so reigned however many years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, uh, and then on the right, you got some bad apples and 
you know, but it's not like completely orange. So basically what we're saying is the covenant that God made with Abraham, uh, with David explains the colors in this chart. There were plenty of bad kings also in Judah on the right column, but it's because of God's faithfulness to his covenant that he did not wipe out Judah when they were being led by bad kings and sinning against God. The line continued. He didn't wipe them out. And clearly, you can see here from the colors, there were more good kings in Judah than Israel. So Israel's faithfulness, so, so God's faithfulness to his covenant also is a reason why some of these were good kings. You understand? Now, the point is this. I mean, you can keep this still up there. Visually, this it makes me happy. I don't know why. It's just, there's some smiley face. It makes me happy. Okay? So even as you look at this, this chart applies to us too. How does this apply to me? Like, these are kings that... It applies to us too because the covenant-keeping God that exercised this, demonstrated this, is the same God that we know today. Meaning, when we come to put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible refers to that as being in Jesus Christ. That means we are living in the grace that comes through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's why we experience God's faithfulness in our lives. So for us, that means the reason why we're not destroyed, right, when we sin, is because God's covenant faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. It also means that the reason we can do anything good in our lives is because of his power that is at work in us in Jesus Christ. In the same way that the list continues on the right side, and in the same way that there are some happy faces on the right side, that's exactly what's at work in our lives. That's the very reason why God doesn't annihilate me, and that's the very reason why there is some good in me, all because of God's faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Too many people get, okay, now you can just go to the next slide. <laughs> too many people get too unreasonably down on themselves. But we have to understand that when we fail, his love is still with me. You got to understand, when you fail, his love still remains because of Jesus Christ. His love will not change because of Jesus Christ. And when I do anything good, it's also because of his grace. So the credit goes to God. A couple of other things. We have lock-in coming up. Obviously, this coming Friday is thanks, uh, you know, Thursday and then you know, Thanksgiving weekend. So you know, the, the, the Friday after that, we have lock-in in two Fridays. We gather together for dinner, play some games, we worship, uh, and we pray. And we do this 
because we're commanded to pray the Bible, and we need to always learn to pray. So we have lock-in at the end of each semester to help us to pray. So please come out, mark that on your calendars, join us. Uh, for some of you students, <laughs> it's that point of the semester where only prayer can help you. Okay, so you have to come out and pray. I say that every, every semester, it's always funny. So please join us, come out for lock-in, and, uh, and pray. Um, have you ever found money on the ground? Just randomly, like, found money on the ground? You see, like, a randomly $20 bill on the ground. There's no one around. So you pick it up, and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I'm so lucky. This isn't supposed to happen. Oh, so lucky. It's really interesting. Like when we see it, right, when we see it, we're happy. <laughs> but then when you actually pick it up and you put it in your pocket, there's a part of you that kind of actually feels guilty, right? You act like, you know, like, pick it up. <sighs> you almost act like you're kind of like getting away with a crime or something, you know? Because this isn't supposed to happen. Like, I didn't deserve this. I just found it. It feels a little weird putting it in my pocket. You know, I was thinking, uh, that's often how we respond to the grace of God. We think of God's grace as someone else's $20 bill. So we often live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ as if I'm supposed to be able to do it. So we try to love, try to serve, try our best to devote, as if I'm supposed to be better on my own strength. Like that's really how we think. I'm supposed to be better than this on my strength. As if I'm not supposed to fail in my own strength. That's why when we actually do fail, it's often like the world, like our entire world falls apart. Where I go through a period of failure and I feel like incapacitated, can't function. I'm too no good. We need to understand that we're supposed to fail. And because we're supposed to fail, God intends for us to find his $20 bill every morning. Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. So now living in the grace of God means that the covenant-keeping God will never fail to drop his $20 bill in front of us every single time we ask. He's a God who doesn't need anything from us, but he will never fail to strengthen us and empower us with his grace. All so that we can become more like Christ, so that we can continue to participate in the work of His forever kingdom. And I pray that we would remember that, that it would never be an awkward thing to hide the grace of God in our hearts, that we can boldly come before the Lord and receive His strength, that He might enable us to live for Him. Let's pray together.
And the key to seeking the will of God is being surrendered to the will of God so that God can say to us, do whatever's in your heart and I will be with you. He's a God who does not need anything from us, does not need the work of human hands because he is self-sufficient, but he invites us to experience his grace, to live in his ever piling on grace of God so that our hearts can be transformed to participate his kingdom work. That is the cannot lose, cannot fail way of living in this covenant relationship in Jesus Christ. May we be strengthened by that message of his love for us, his hope in our lives, that we might go to him receive from him the things that only he can provide so that he can be glorified in our lives. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, your unchanging, unfailing covenant, hesed love for us in Jesus Christ. Pray that daily in our lives we would trust in that promise of an unfailing love that would be the strength within our hearts to follow after you. Be with your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. I realize that uh, many times in our lives, you know, as we try to follow Christ, there are times, many times, where we might not be feeling it, right? And you think, God, you're so good, and you don't feel it. Like, it's not, not really coming from your heart. It's just more coming from your lips. as you anticipate going home after worship it's not feeling it you know um, I think even in that I think there are like two different categories of not feeling it I think if we say oh, I don't feel it um, what can I do I'm not responsible for anything like if God's going to do something that God's going to do something in my heart so, you know, kind of like approaching it on my own terms, like with, with some pride, then I don't think you're in a good place. There has to be humility before God uh, in that situation. And, you know, there has to be repentance. But if you're in a place where you're not feeling it, but like still at the same time you're saying, God, right? there's still a part of you that's crying out, God, right? Like you're even frustrated with yourself. You recognize that you need help. God, maybe that's all you can pray. Lord, I need your help. I can't do this. God, I need you. In that situation, I would say you're exactly where you need to be. Us. We don't generate anything by ourselves. It's a life purely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So take strength and have hope. And trust in the promises of God. That is the reason for which Jesus gave his life for you on the cross. Let's just take a brief 
few more seconds and pray and depend on the Lord. And I'll close this prayer and benediction. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a covenant God, a covenant-making God, a covenant-keeping God, that we can always bank on your promises, the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that your love for us in Christ will never fail, does not depend on our ability to keep our part of the, our part of the bargain. Thank you that in our failure, your grace always remains. Steadfast love is new every morning. As you have been good to us, as we can testify the marks of your faithfulness all throughout our history, as you are good to us today, we trust in you that you will continue be faithful to your promises and will be good to your people. And in that hope, we trust in your promises that we come to you in our weaknesses, in our failures, in our human sinful frailty. I ask that you would do in us what no human being can do, that you would create within us a desire to love you, to trust you, to put you first above everything else pray that you would grant us the privilege to participate in your forever kingdom work. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this unchanging, covenant, faithful, hesed love of the Father God, the fellowship and the strength, the power of the Holy Spirit be with you, God's people, both now and forever.